All right. Have a good morning, you guys. All right, yep, five, six, head down that way. Kindergarten through fourth, head that way. And uh, the rest of you are stuck with me. Can you guys not tell that uh, Bridget's a, like, teacher? I mean, she's awarding gold stars. She's, like, having you guys say it three times, good morning. I mean, what a great teacher. Uh, but, you know, that just makes me, rem- just reminds me just how thankful I am for the, the team that we have. I, I am just so incredibly grateful for Bridget. She is just knocking it out of the park back in Kids Creek. And for a number of you who serve in Kids Creek, uh, I just love the way she supports you and, and leads you and lets you just do your thing. Uh, so thank you guys so much for there. And then just listen to the, the team this morning uh, lead us in worship. I just found myself so incredibly grateful for Jake and everyone who's willing to take their time. Uh, I'm just so blessed to, to get to work with these guys and, and ha- have their hearts uh, entwined with mine. So I'm, I'm grateful for them. If you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, as Bridget said, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And uh, today we are going to continue on in our series in the book of Acts. Um, when I was, uh, my mom says that when I was three or four years old, I uh, had a hero, and, and I don't think that's uncommon. I think most three- and four-year-olds have some sort of hero, someone that they idolize, someone they want to grow up to be like. But I think most kids, their hero is like the local firefighter or policeman. You know, maybe it's a, an athlete or an actor. Maybe it's just their mom or dad. But I was weird. My mom says that my childhood hero was Bob Barker. Now, if you don't know who Bob Barker is, it's because you're really young. Uh, Bob was the longtime host of The Price is Right. He actually started hosting it. it apparently, it was a show in the 50s, went away for a while, and they brought it back in 1972, and he was the host. And he hosted for 35 years. And for some reason, I thought he was the coolest guy ever. Now, thankfully, I do not remember this embarrassing stage of life. But my mom says that I would try to make her bid on items. I would also take the lazy boy chair, flip the, the leg rest out, and ours, there was like an empty spot between where the leg rest was and the, the chair, and I would take my two and three-year-old brother and set him in there and make him bid on items. And when he'd start crying and wanting to get out of there, I'd get mad at him because I wanted to be Bob Barker. Now, I ended up replacing Bob in my life. Uh, I went on to different sports and baseball stars. I became an avid sports fan as a little kid, despite my parents not really being sports fans. But I wasn't the only one to have replaced Bob. Because after that 35-year career, he finally decided to retire, and they replaced him with Drew Carey. So some of you who are young, you're like, I thought the host was Drew Carey. You were right. But before Drew, it was Bob. And everyone loved Bob. But that's my point today is that no matter how much you may love someone, everybody is replaceable. Think about it. Athletes and coaches are replaced on teams all the time. At your workplace, bosses, fellow employees are replaced. Politicians get replaced. Who's at the top of the music charts gets replaced. Even pastors and longtime game show hosts get replaced. Everybody is replaceable. Now, the emotional response to someone being replaced can change. Like, if it's your really, really grumpy, demanding, micromanaging boss, you're not going to shed a few, any tears over that one. But when it's your favorite athlete who gets traded or your favorite longtime game show host retires, there's a little bit of sadness because you just 
can't imagine what your life would be like without that hero in that prominent place. I've seen this happen in church world where a beloved pastor or staff member either leaves to go to another church or leaves to go into another career or retires. And what ends up happening is some people end up leaving the church because it turns out that their connection was not to one another. It was not connected to the mission that God had for that church. Their connection was with that pastor or that staff member. And if they're no longer going to be there, it just doesn't feel like my church anymore. That's why we long for you to get into growth groups, to connect with one another. It's why I'm trying to bring you to Jesus and connect you to him. Because even though I have no plans yet, this is not an announcement, I will one day no longer be here. I'm replaceable. We all are. Today, we're going to see in the early church, at the very beginning, as the church is getting started, one of the disciples get replaced. Now, the, the guy that's getting replaced, there, there were not too many tears shed over him. There, there was a lot of anger. They were actually glad that he's gone. But what we're going to see is that, yes, even in the 12 disciples, even they can be replaced. And we're going to see something very interesting, that the guy who steps in and makes the replacement, the nude guy, he goes on to become basically unknown. He doesn't go on to great fame and fortune. He basically heads off into anonymity because, to quote the first sentence in Rick Warren's famous book, The Purpose Driven Life, we're going to discover it's not about you. If you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to the book of Acts. Head to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to finish up Acts 1 today. If you did not bring a Bible with you, don't worry about it. We will be putting the scripture up on the screen. Uh, I just highly encourage you to get one, either a digital Bible on your phone, or stop by our resource table and pick up one of the paper Bibles that we have there. And feel free to not just you know pick it up when you come in on Sundays, but take it with you and make it your Bible on Monday, Tuesday, and every day. As we uh, get ready to read in Acts 1, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are about to approach your Holy Scripture, and uh, that means that uh, you have been saying certain things to your people throughout generations, and now we get to be a part of that. And so we ask that you would speak, that it wouldn't be so much about what I've tried to prepare or how good of a job I do, that really this is about what you have for us, that in you sharing the record, the story of what happened in those early days in the, the first church, that there's truths there that can still resonate, that can impact us as a church, as well as individuals. And that is why I ask that you open our ears and our hearts, have our minds to hear from you and your Holy Spirit. What do you want us to hear and learn? May that be what we walk out with today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we uh, did verses 1 through 11. In there, we heard Jesus give a mandate. Uh, he, he told the church in Acts 1-8 that, that when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they were to go and be his witnesses, that these disciples were going to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to share this story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Immediately after sharing that mandate, Jesus then ascends up to heaven, and now they're standing out there on the Mount of Olives. So after watching him go and a couple of angels pop in and say, hey, don't worry about it. He's going to come back. Let's get busy. They decide to make their way back to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick it up in verse 12. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, meaning entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus has just ascended up to Jerusalem. And they're standing on this mountaintop called Olivet. You might know it as the Mount of Olives. It's also the location where the Garden of Gethsemane was. It was just located to the east of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus, uh, you know, like 40, 50 days prior, had been praying in the garden and the soldiers showed up and, and arrested him. And yet this is then where they go back to. And, and it's there Jesus gives this mandate and ascends to heaven. But notice it says there that it was a Sabbath day journey away. This does not mean that they're traveling on the Sabbath. A Sabbath day journey was a certain length of, of distance that a Jew was allowed to walk on the Sabbath without it being considered work. It was roughly about a half a mile to three-fourths of a mile. All right? So in other words, they're, they're just a half mile outside of the city. So Jesus has just ascended. These two angels show up and like, yeah, don't worry, he's coming back. So it's kind of like, well, what do we do now? And so they just head back into Jerusalem, and it says that they head to the upper room. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that they celebrated the Passover meal in an upper room. We don't know if it's the exact same upper room. In Jerusalem at that time, the upper city was kind of the wealthy district. And so a number of the houses there had these upper rooms. And some of them, the upper rooms weren't even really being used, and so they could be rented out. It was like meeting space. Well, some of the disciples are staying in one of these upper rooms. They do not have their own lodging there in Jerusalem. And so this is where they're staying. They're eating there. They're sleeping there. And so they just kind of head back home. Now, we don't know if they're renting this. We don't know if someone was just, you know, showing compassion and letting them use it. It, it may have been a Jesus follower, for all we know, who, who believed in the mission and everything. And so he's just letting them stay there for free. But they all gather back there. And I want you to notice who is there. If you start counting the names that Luke puts in here in verse 13, you'll notice that there are 11. Oh, but wait, wait a second. I, I thought there were 12 disciples. Wow, there were. That's why we're going to need a replacement. We're going to talk about that today. But I also want you to know, down, notice down in verse 14, it says that they were together with the women. Elsewhere in, in the Gospels, we see that there's a group of women that travel around with Jesus, many of them helping supply the needs of, of Jesus and his disciples. But also notice it says Mary, the mother of Jesus, all right, so the Virgin Mary is there, and his brothers. That's remarkable because I think it's in a, a John uh, chapter uh, 7. Uh, I have it down here. Yeah, John 7. We see Jesus' brothers like teasing him. Because they don't believe that he's the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Son of God. And so they're mocking him. And now here they are with the 11, with their mom, with some other women, and praying. It's like they've become believers in Jesus. Why the change? Why did they go from mocking him to now believing in him? Well, think about it for a second. If you had a sibling brutally murdered publicly in front of everyone, 
and then he or she rose from the dead a couple days later, your opinion of them might change a little bit. If the fifth and sixth graders were in here, I'd probably be talking to them. Uh, oh, I, I guess I could talk to you, come to you guys. Right? Yeah, think about it. If, you're, if your brother suddenly like rose from the dead, yeah, you, you're probably not going to be trying to beat him up nearly as much. They suddenly realize it's true. He prophesied he was going to die and rise again, and he pulled it off. They stop mocking him. They start following him. So they're all together, and what do they do? They start praying, it says. We do not know exactly what the emotional state is at this time, but I would imagine it is quite a mix. I would imagine that there's a part of them that's just incredibly excited. I mean, think about it. 40, 50 some days prior to this, they saw Jesus die. He wasn't supposed to die. This is the Messiah. He's going to usher in the, the new Israel. And instead, he dies. And they went through the darkest time. And then suddenly he comes back to life. How exciting. And they got to hang out with him for 40 days. And now they just stood on a mountaintop and they saw Jesus ascend to heaven and he gave them a mandate. Here's what I want you to go do. So here's this next. What's next? How's this going to happen? They, the, all the elders and leaders and then that killed Jesus. Are they going to kill us? But yet Jesus said he'd always be with us. Like it, I'm sure they are an emotional mess. So in the midst of everything, they just find themselves praying. Start going to God. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Give us direction. What are we supposed to do? And that is when Peter begins to get an idea. Join me at verse 15. So in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. All right, so we've moved beyond just the 11, some women, and Mary and the brothers. Now we've got more, all right, there. So, so we've got 120 people who are now present. And they're sensing that this whole story about Jesus is true. He died on a cross. He rose again from the dead. There's a lot of curiosity. So we're now up to about 120. And Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. All right, so Judas was one of the 12, Judas Iscariot. He was one of the 12 disciples, but now Peter's saying he, he, arrest, he had Jesus arrested. He betrayed him. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, suddenly Luke takes a little aside. We're not in Peter's speech anymore. We're hearing from Luke. Now, this man, referring to Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. Now we're back to Peter speaking. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. If you are new to the Bible or new to faith, 
you probably have an, a, a knowledge, an idea that this whole story about Jesus being betrayed, you may even know that the name of the guy who betrayed him was Judas Iscariot. But you might not know the, the details. During the, the Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating in this upper room with his disciples, which many Christians know as the Last Supper, because it's the last Passover meal he celebrated with them before his death the next day. When Jesus is having that meal, Judas during it ends up getting up and leaving. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He knew Judas was going to betray him. And yet Judas gets up and leaves because Judas knew the plan afterwards was for them to take off and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Judas leaves, goes and alerts the Jewish leaders who give him a group of uh, soldiers and they go and they have Jesus arrested in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Eden, sorry, Garden of Gethsemane. They then take him into uh, town. They have this sham of a trial. The Sanhedrin was supposed to be doing their, their trials publicly and during the day. They do this privately and at night. They condemn Jesus, find him guilty. They then next morning take him before the Romans, tell him that he claims to be a king, which is an affront to Caesar. So therefore the Romans should take him and kill him. And it all happened because of Judas. And so these disciples are a little mad at Judas. How could he? How dare he? This is the son of God. This is the Messiah. How could you betray him? And so even though God works this out, this was God's plan all along, there's still some bitterness here. They cannot believe this guy. And so uh, Peter knows Psalm 109. All right, he quotes from two different Psalms. The second one there is from Psalm 109. And Psalm 109, by the way, is all about evil men. If you want to read some really harsh words in the Bible about guys, and, and well, I guess you could say women, but mostly men, who are just incredibly selfish and incredibly wicked and, and evil, read Psalm 109. You'll be kind of like, that's in the Bible? Well, in Peter's mind, Judas is one of these guys. He's wicked. How could he do this? And so as this, ver as this passage comes to mind, he remembers that verse 8 says this. Oh, uh, where am I at? Should have just put it in my Bible. Basically, it says, may his days be few, may another take his office. Well, his days were few. Judas committed suicide. He ends up dying. And yet, now may another take his office. So Peter has this sense, this idea that we need to put someone else into this position. We need to get it back to 12 disciples. But why? I mean, like, isn't 11 guys enough? I mean, if you've ever served on a committee, 11 probably sounds like too many. Why do they need it back at 12? You've got to realize that to the Israelites, the number 12 is very sacred. In fact, the, uh, there was an ancient Jewish community known as the Essenes. They became somewhat famous when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered uh, because the, they were the ones who helped you know, write these, uh, copy these uh, scrolls, and then preserved them. Well, the Essenes were ruled by 12 elders. And their reasoning, they, they wrote it down, their reasoning was it showed that they were a remnant of true Israel. You see, Israel, when God started them, started them with 12 tribes. Well, those 12 tribes became then the center of the, the, the nation. And so therefore, if 12 is what matters to God, then 12 is what should matter to us. And we see that with the Essenes 
And so perhaps Jesus has some of the same idea. We need 12 disciples to show we are a remnant of true Israel. So if Jesus wanted 12 disciples, then perhaps we should replace Judas and have in a 12th disciple. But notice he didn't just say, so let's just kind of pick someone. Who do we like? Who, who seems the most charismatic? You know, who's raised the most money for their campaign fund? Who, who seems to be a, a good one? No, he puts in some parameters there. He said, we need someone who was with us from John's baptism. So there's John the Baptist. John was baptizing in the Jordan River. We don't know if he exactly means that when Jesus was baptized, I kind of think it does, but maybe it means just he underwent John's baptism. And he says, someone who was witness through John's baptism to the ascension, which has just happened like a few hours or days prior to what we're reading. This tells us a couple of things. First of all, when we imagine Jesus with his disciples, so often we think it's like Jesus and the, and the 12. But it means there are way more people around, listening, learning. Jesus chose out of the group 12 to be that kind of main group who end up becoming the apostles. Those are the ones he poured the most into. But there was more than just 12. Helps you understand why in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is able to send 72 out. Because there were not just the 12 there were way more. Also, this tells us the fact that they want to replace this with someone who has a bit been around, that they truly listen to the mandate. Because remember, Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses. So they want to have someone who is a witness to all of these events. That's why we don't see them nominate one of Jesus's brothers. You'd kind of think like, well, hey, if you're like the half-brother of Jesus, you, you might have a little bit of that DNA in you. You'd be a great leader. No, because th the brothers didn't believe. Now, James, one of Jesus' brothers, goes on to replace Peter. Peter, as you're noticing here, is kind of rising up as a leader for the church. Later, we're going to see Peter kind of fade as the leader, and James is going to rise up. And James goes on to write the letter that bears his name, the book of James. But he doesn't get elected, selected at this time, because he's, in a sense, still just a baby Christian. And so they need someone who's been a witness. And that's where they then draw out two guys. Notice verse 23. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. If you were with us last week as we kicked off the book of Acts, I told you that Luke was incredibly detail-oriented. Here is a perfect example. He did not say two were brought forward Joseph and Matthias. Because there were a lot of Josephs in that day. A lot. And so he wants to identify him by his nickname. You're going to meet in a couple of chapters another Joseph. Many of you are familiar with this Joseph. You just don't know his name is Joseph. You know him by his nickname. His nickname is Barnabas. Means son of encouragement. Well, this Joseph here in chapter 1 is also known by his nickname, Barsabbas. Which means son of the Sabbath. Most likely, it means he was born on the Sabbath. But apparently, that's not good enough to Luke. Because there may have been a couple of Josephs born on the Sabbath. So he also wants you to know his Roman name is Justice. And then you have Matthias. Poor guy. He only gets one name. Right? But, but Luke just wants to make sure you really hear this. All right? Um, I want you to realize that what's happening here was not a popularity contest. 
these guys aren't candidating for it. They weren't standing up going, well, you know, I better hang it around. They're actually being nominated into something that's very dangerous. Think, think about it. Just 40 days prior to this, the Romans and some of the Jewish leaders had Jesus killed. No, yes, Jesus rose again from the dead a couple days later. These disciples have been around that resurrected Christ. Many people have seen it. The word was beginning to spread. And yet, there were people so threatened by Jesus, they wanted him killed. And now there's going to be people going around, yeah, but he's not dead. What do you think is going to happen to them? And so this isn't the guys going, well, I'd like to make a case for why I think I should be nominated to be the 12th apostle. These are guys being nominated into something that could cost them their lives. And in a moment, I'm going to share how one of them ends up, does end up losing his life if tradition is true. So here's the process. These two guys are brought forward and then notice how they go about doing it. Verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I want you to notice how the decision was made. Prayer and trust. The first thing they do is they pray. They have a big decision to make. But they trust that God is going to lead them. And so they just go before him. And I want you to notice how they pray. First, they pray, Lord. So often in the scriptures, when we see prayers, we see them address them to our Heavenly Father. And that is a perfectly beautiful, natural way to pray. But the fact that they pray, Lord, that's the way they used to talk to Jesus when he was on earth. So it's like they're praying to Christ, which makes sense. Because in Matthew 28, which is the parallel with Acts 1, which Matt's going to be preaching from next week, we see Jesus say to them, I will be with you to the end of the age. So if Jesus is with them, why not talk with him? And plus, they think Jesus wanted 12 apostles. Well, he chose the first original 12, knowing Judas was going to betray him. And so God must have had a plan all along for how he was going to replace him. So we talk to Jesus and notice, you have already chosen. They have full confidence in the sovereignty of God. So when they cast lots there, this is not them just rolling dice and, and gambling. Now, this is like drawing straws, saying, God, I'm putting this in your hands. Where This is the method we're going to use. Would you reveal through this which one of these two you have selected? And it falls on Matthias. Now, interestingly enough, Matthias is only mentioned in Scripture in two places. Verse 23 and verse 26. In other words, this is it. You would think if a guy is being named an apostle and he's being identified here in the book known as the Acts of the Apostles, we'd see him at least one more time. More likely two, three, four, five. But we don't. We hear nothing else about him. Now, I told you earlier that tradition holds something about these guys. Both of them, tradition holds, became missionaries. Matthias became a missionary to Ethiopia where he was martyred for his faith. 
If that is true, it means that Matthias lived out being an apostle, not in order to make a name for himself, but rather to help other people know the name of Jesus. And that's what I want you to see in this. That even here, as God is establishing his church and he's bringing leaders for it, as Judas has gone off and betrayed and died, he brings in Matthias. But it's his church. And everyone is replaceable. Ultimately, the book of Acts is not about Matthias or Peter who's speaking or Paul who we're going to meet later. It's ultimately about Jesus. These guys just merely fulfilled a role in helping the spiritually disconnected find Jesus and begin to follow him. And that's important for us to know. Because if you seek to live your life all about self, you are setting yourself up for heartache. So by all means, please, when you pray, pray with full trust. Feel free to talk directly to Jesus. But don't make your prayers only about your own comfort, your own glory. Now, please, don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not asking you to ignore your, your physical and mental health. Not asking you to beat yourself up emotionally, mentally, or with your words. Not asking you to, to self-mutilate. Remember, the gospel says that you are loved. You are valuable. Do you know how much you're worth? You're worth the blood of Jesus. That's how much worth you have. So you're not trash. You are a son and daughter of the Most High God. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you belong to him. But he's not called you into this life to now make your life all about self. But that's what so many of us do. So many of us, we either make it all about me, or we center ourselves on someone, hopefully not Bob Barker, but you make your life all about someone, and when, when it's self or someone else, you're setting yourself up for pain. You need to make your life all about Jesus. When you, when you make your life all about someone else, you're, you're setting yourself up for heartache. They will let you down because they are replaceable. Now, if, if you're married, please, I want you to love that spouse full on. I just want you to know, though, if you try to make them the center of your universe, they will fail you. You're going to be set up for hurt, and you will end up failing them. God is not calling you to make them the center of your universe. In fact, the way that most the healthiest marriages happen is when Christ is what you value, when he is the center of your life, now you do everything for his glory, you suddenly find yourself serving them better and more selflessly than when they are the center of your universe. If you're a parent, same goes with your kids. Don't let them become the center. You let Christ be the center, and out of the overflow of your identity as a follower of Jesus, you will love your children as they need to be loved. But many of us, the person at the center of our world, isn't a spouse, isn't a kid, isn't some hero. It's ourselves. We're so focused on our own comfort, our own recognition, our own glory. Now, again, don't mishear me. I am not saying it's, it's wrong and sinful to end up being recognized for, for some great achievement. 
I, I'm not saying that you can't like go and, and watch a show. I'm not saying avoid ice cream. What I am saying is when you use ice cream just to pamper yourself, when you're binging the show just to entertain yourself, when you're seeking to get the recognition just so you feel loved, you've now made it all about me and not about Christ. And that's going to lead you to such frustration because guess what? Not everyone is going to have the same view of you that you do. So you're going to be so angry and mad at everyone all the time because they're not giving you the attention that you think you deserve because your life is all about you. And so therefore, everyone else should make their life all about me. But when you make your life about Jesus, when you make him the center, suddenly people want to be around you. Suddenly people like hearing from you. Suddenly people want to like give things to you. In God's economy, everything's upside down. We often think the way to happiness is to make it all about self, and God's saying, no, the way to happiness is to make it not about self. That when you go low, he raises you up. In fact, this is exactly what we see in Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul is writing about humility. And he, and he says that Jesus is the perfect example because he went to the cross. Well, first of all, he left heaven to come down to earth. So God takes on human flesh, so humbles himself. But then he goes even further. He humbles himself by going and dying on the cross. And the result of him humbling himself is this, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So many of us, we are working so hard to try to climb, and God is saying, no. Instead, go down, go low. Because when you humble yourself, God is the one who raises you up. When you try to put yourself first, you will be last. But when you make yourself last, God will then make you first. When you make your life all about me, you are setting yourself up for so much pain. But when you make your life all about Christ, that is where you're going to find your greatest joy. It's not easy. It's so hard. We live with ourselves all the time. We are more aware of our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, our own dreams, better than we know anyone else's. And so because this stuff is clamoring around all the time, it's hard to continue to submit it to God. And yet, I think God wants some of you to lay your dreams down before him, to submit it to him, because he's going to actually do more with it than you ever could. But if you continue down the path you're going, you're not going to see the dream like you want. But humbling yourself, submitting it to God, letting him be first, he's going to actually do more with it than you ever thought imaginable. But the only way you're going to see it is to make it not about you, not about your hero, but to make it about Christ. So the question is, Who's at the center of your world? If it's you, if it's someone else, you're replaceable, and so are they. But Christ is eternal. He's the only one who will never be replaced. He will always occupy the throne. Will you let him occupy the throne of your life now? Because then, as the old song says, on that day when Jesus calls my name, I want it to be no big change. 
when I get there, it will be me just continuing how I've already been living. I cannot think of a better way for us to remind ourselves to put Jesus at the center than to go to the communion table. Because as we take those elements, it is a reminder that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And as we take that bread into us, we remember he died, his body was broken. As we take the cup, we realize that was his blood that was shed for us. We submit ourselves to him as we take that in. So that's what we want to do during this next song. I just encourage you to sing, to pray, at any point during the, the song to go to the table and you let that be a reminder to put Jesus at the absolute center of who you are. If you are a first-time guest with us today, uh, I just want you to know at Riverwood, we celebrate what is called open communion. That means if you are a follower of Jesus, you have put your faith fully into the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, then the table is open to you. We would love for you to come and worship him with us in this way. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know we are so glad you're here. We actually started Riverwood for you. We want you, if you feel spiritually disconnected from God, we want to be a part of helping answer any questions you have and help you on this spiritual journey to come to a place to realize the story is true, that Jesus really did die on a cross. He really did rise out of the tomb, and he really does call you to follow him. But if you're not there yet, I'm going to ask that you just very respectfully not go to this table. You do not need to put on a show and pretend to be something that you're not. It's okay. No one here is going to judge you. Many of us at Riverwood used to be where you are right now. And so we are fine with you staying where you're at. We would just encourage you during this song to pray, to simply ask God, is it true? Is this whole story of Jesus actual? Because if it is, he's calling you into something. He wants to rescue you from making your life all about someone else or all about yourself. He's inviting you to let Jesus become the center, to make it all about him. So if you've been making your life these last few days all about self, if you've been realizing that this season, it's, it's been all centered on one person, this is your time to confess that, to ask God to draw you back again, to let Jesus be at the center so that you can love yourself the way you need to, to love those other people the way they need to be loved. But it's going to start by having your identity first and foremost in Christ. So Heavenly Father, I pray as we take these holy elements that you would be in our midst, that you would work, that you would help us to see the importance of Christ, that he would be at the center of our being, of our minds, of our, of our affections, that everything we say and do would be for him and about him. God, I thank you so much for your grace, the way you lavish us with forgiveness that even those of us who've been too self-centered, we've been pampering ourselves through our phones and our food and our entertainment. We've been doing what we can to try to get recognition. We've tried to make our life all about ourselves or we've been giving our attention to someone else because of, of, of the time and demands. God, would you just in this moment help us to get back to you? I pray for the person that has never fully surrendered their life to you, that today would become their spiritual birthday, that they would spend this next moment in prayer confessing their sin, declaring you as God, and choosing to put their faith fully upon Jesus. And as we take these elements, God, help us to thank you for what Jesus did for us and what you now want to do in us and through us. So Father, may you be glorified in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So again, at any time during the song, feel free to make your way to the elements, and as you take them, do it in remembrance of him.